What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Tuesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern, on Pacifica Affiliates WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD in Kasilof and Anchorage, Alaska. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project, streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for joining us on Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, I am very honored to have Linda Andre on the show. Linda is the author of Doctors of Deception, What They Don't Want You to Know About Shock Treatment. She is the director of the Committee for Truth in Psychiatry. She's an electroshock survivor herself, um, Doctors of Deception. The book is an incredible expose of the tobacco industry scale lie that is behind the public relations around electroshock therapy. So be prepared to um, hear a lot of things that you will not hear from doctors and from uh, the mainstream mental health establishment. This is an historic book, and I strongly recommend people to check it out and to check out Linda's uh, work. The book is Doctors of Deception, What They Don't Want You to Know About Shock Treatment, available through Rutgers University Press. Uh, Linda Andre, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. I'm very glad to be here. Now, Linda, how long has this book been in development? Because I think that it's fair to say that you have written the definitive book on electroshock therapy. It is. It just astounds me how much powerful information, information that's not available anywhere else, is available in this book. And, and it took you years and years to write. Is that right? Yes. Well, I think it's important to say this book is a history of shock treatment. And for many years, I lived the history for about the past 25 years. So I not only um, write about it, but I, I went through it myself. Um, I go back before shock treatment was even invented because I think it's necessary to talk about the attitudes that made shock treatment possible and then the historical quirks. I mean, there's no other way to put it that kind of allowed it to keep going when other treatments from the same era, such as lobotomy, are not used anymore and that we think these are barbaric. But shock treatment continues to thrive. And I looked back and I asked how that could be. And I zeroed in on the critical period of the 1970s because I think that's when that's when the industry, I call it the shock industry because it is a money-making industry like any other, that's when the shock industry kind of put together the big lie that's been selling shock treatment ever since. Now, Linda, you yourself are an electroshock survivor. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about that and then how you became interested in becoming an advocate and a researcher? I had shock myself back in the mid-'80s, and I had a typical experience, I would say, and I say that having spoken to or been in touch with or read about just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people who had this experience. I would say mine is fairly typical in that I lost five years of my life that were erased as if they had never happened. Uh, that was extremely traumatic for me. Now, this was a loss um, of your memory, is that right? Which is a very common thing that's reported. Well, as I say in my book, your memory is your life. Your memory is what makes you you. You take away five years of your life, 
And I was only 25 at the time, so that was a significant proportion of my life. You take that away from somebody, that person is never going to be the same person. And I also have suffered permanent cognitive disability from ECT. I have compensated for it to some extent, but it is permanent. And it did limit my potential in life ever since that happened. So this was a devastating experience for me as it would be for anybody. And when did you decide to write the book and start to work with the Committee for Truth in Psychiatry? Well, the book grew out of all these experiences I was having, you know, meeting people from around the world, um, getting in touch with other shock survivors, meeting Marilyn Rice, a wonderful, wonderful woman who deserves a place in history and hasn't had it. She started the Committee for Truth in Psychiatry in the 1970s, and it's just a simple story. She was an ordinary woman. She fell into the hands of psychiatry over a crisis that was going on in her life at that time. The doctors told her shock treatment was harmless. They sold her on it. They didn't tell her about the risks. She ended up having her memory erased, as I did. She ended up not being able to return to her work. And she was mad. She was very angry. And that anger, that outrage, fueled the work that she did for the rest of her life, organizing other ECT survivors, starting a committee for truth in psychiatry, which she formed for a very simple purpose. It was to ensure a truthful, informed consent to ECT. That sounds very reasonable. Um, unfortunately, we haven't been able to achieve that in the years since, and I talk about some of the reasons for that in my book. Now, that is a really key um, theme of the book, which is very, very simple, documenting how the shock industry, um, public relations people, doctors, um, researchers who are financially tied, uh, making money off of electroshock devices, have been able to prevent accurate information from getting out into the public. And um, just to give an example of this, I mean, I know that I myself had a, a run-in uh, with electroshock um, therapy, electroconvulsive therapy. I was in lockup in um, Langley Porter Psychiatric Institute. Many people have heard me tell this story before. And they, um, the doctors came in and they said, well, Mr. Hall, we have tried everything to help get you out of your state. I was in a very um, withdrawn, um, having what are called negative symptoms. Of, I had a diagnosis of schizophrenia, and so I was often catatonic. I would not talk to people. Um, so-called catatonic, and they said, well, we've tried everything, and so now we need to consider electroshock, electroconvulsive therapy. But, uh, you know, it's different now. Don't worry. It's um, It doesn't have as much electricity. It's not the same as it used to be. Um, and so I was really considering it because they had um, the legal requirement of getting my consent, which is, was not true um, prior to the 70s, that people were being electroshocked all the time without their consent. It actually does still happen uh, today, but I was asked um, for my consent, and I was really considering doing um, electroconvulsive therapy because, you know, I figured, well, they've tried everything. Now, all they had tried was medication. They had tried different kinds of medication. They hadn't tried all the things that I later learned helped me, um, such such as peer, peer support and nutrition um, exercise, meditation, all the different things that I've learned to take care of myself. And um, they gave me some informed consent documents. So, I mean, these are the risks of electroshock. And there was nothing in there about the th kinds of things that you're talking about in your, your book, the, the widespread 
um, memory loss and, and life erasing, which is what you're right, which is what memory loss is because we are our memories. And what really stu- stood out to me because I was considering doing this treatment was that I looked at these and I, you know, I didn't understand about the dangers of electroshock, but I did know this, that electroshock now involves going under general anesthesia very briefly to get the treatment. You're done under anesthesia, which is a change um, from previously how electroshock was done. And I know that general anesthesia itself is a dangerous procedure. Nothing in the informed consent documents I was given for the procedure I was going through told me about the dangers of general anesthesia, much less electroshock. And at, in my frame of mind, I was not able to assess the, um, the misinformation I was being given about electroconvulsive therapy. But I was able to remember, wait a second, I've done surgeries before, and you know, general anesthesia is actually a little bit risky. There's nothing in these documents about the risks of, of general anesthesia. And so I mentioned this to my, my psychiatrist, and he just sort of looked puzzled and didn't really have much of a response. And I didn't end up doing the electroshock um, because as I was considering it, now I was locked up. They were not going to let me go. I was considered a danger to myself and unable to take care of myself. As I was considering doing the electroshock, the um, social worker came in and said, Mr. Hall, we are discharging you from the hospital tomorrow. And I said, what, what, you're discharging me tomorrow? And they said, yes, the, the insurance for keeping you here has run out. You so were very lucky. I was very lucky. I came very close um, to get, getting electroshock. And, but let's, let's get really into, you talk about how the deception of the industry and the misinformation, let's talk about um, the, what we hear, that um, you know, electroshock is, is new today, it's not the same, it's lower voltage. Tell us about that. Uh, you know, if I could summarize my book in one sentence, it would be this. If you tell a big lie and you tell it often enough and it's big enough, people will believe it. And that is the whole story behind this success, if you will, or the widespread use of ECT, because the industry really pounds home the message, and it's, it hasn't changed since the, since the 1970s. Um, ECT is not like it used to be. You know? And I can't tell you how many people will just repeat that back to me when I mention shock treatment. They don't know what they're talking about. They just know that they heard this somewhere, or some expert, so-called expert said it, and they believe it to be true because well, it was on 2020, it was on 60 Minutes, you know, or whatever. And we should remember uh, that the tobacco industry, which you compare the electroshock industry to, um, also had the grip of the media and doctors, and everyone was promoting a very big lie that cigarettes did not cause cancer. This was for a long time before it finally broke. So the power of industry to manipulate the truth and to lie to the public is, is well established in the case of the tobacco industry. What would you say to someone who says, well, show me the proof that electroshock isn't different. Show me the proof that the industry is, is lying about this. This is very simple. It's a physical fact. When they say that shock treatment is new and improved, what they're talking about is the use of anesthesia, the use of oxygenation, the use of muscle paralyzing drugs, and all these things, first of all, are not new because they've been in use since the 1950s. And second of all, they don't make shock treatment safer. They make it physically more damaging to the brain. 
How does that go? So anesthesia and muscle relaxants make it actually a more dangerous procedure. How, how is that? Because I, I know that sometimes people, often they would have thrashing convulsions when the procedure was administered, and right. that would often break bones, but you're saying that actually... Well, you know what? Mm-hmm. You know what? Well, broken bones heal, but when you have brain damage, that is permanent. So, yeah, it's true. The anesthesia prevented people having broken bones and broken teeth. However... What it does is raise the seizure threshold in the brain because the brain naturally tries to protect itself. It knows that seizures are dangerous. It's hardwired to protect itself against seizure. And when you use anesthesia, you raise the seizure threshold, which means you have to use more electricity to overcome it, not less electricity. And at the same time, the industry is telling you it uses less electricity. Well, that's just the contradiction. As far as using oxygen, now they claim where they like to tell people, that using pure oxygen during the seizure um, makes it safer. Once again, that's, that was in use since the 1950s, and it wasn't invented to protect the brain. It wasn't invented to spare memory, as the big shock doctors like to say. Actually, it was invented to make seizures longer because oxygen fuels the seizure in the brain. Again, making it more dangerous to the brain not less dangerous. Now, let's back up a second. So the um, what are the origins of electroshock um, therapy? Tell us a little bit about, about that very disturbing history of where all this came from, because it's very tied into the earlier days of psychiatry with these barbaric treatments like lobotomy, for example. Well, remember, shock treatment was invented in 1938 when basically anything went as far as what you could do to mental patients. I mean, there were no rights protections. There was no recognition of any rights. And in fact, let's remember that in the 1930s in Germany, mental patients were being killed in hospitals by their doctors because they were said to be a burden on society. And this was kind of test run for the Holocaust. Hundreds of thousands of mental patients were killed. They called it euthanasia. And you also need to remember that this idea was also widely accepted in America at the same time, even by leading psychiatrists and neurologists who argued in as late as 1941 in the American Journal of Psychiatry that mental patients should be euthanized or killed because they were a burden on society and society had to do something to protect itself from people with these labels. So in this atmosphere, how was electroshock discovered and then used as a a so-called treatment? Well, first came insulin shock, which involved overdosing a patient with insulin to send them into a coma. And then, you know, if they were lucky, they'd come out of the coma. And doctors observed that patients seemed calmer after this. And so this became a widespread so-called treatment in the public mental hospitals. And then in Italy, a couple of psychiatrists got the idea to use electricity based on the mistaken notion that's been totally debunked now that um, people who had uh, epilepsy couldn't have mental illness, that there was this antagonism. Well, that's completely not true, but that was the theory behind it. They believed at that time that people with epilepsy had seizures and therefore they didn't have mental illness. So let's induce seizures with electricity, which is kind of like a crackpot. It's basically a crackpot 
idea There's that... no scientific validity behind it whatsoever. And that was the belief at the time. And, and wasn't there some story with... Um, Animal slaughterhouses, and uh, tell us tell us that story. Or is that... yeah, these you know today, this could never happen. Today, you know, we have controlled trials, we have IRBs overseeing research, we have the FDA. Um, well, back then there was nothing. So what they did was they applied electricity to pigs and hogs, and first they killed them, and then they figured out a way to do it without killing them. And they saw that the pigs and hogs were able to stand up and run away after they had been shocked. So then they reasoned that it must be safe for human beings. And based on that, they went and rounded up an unwilling human being, dragged him to their hospital, shocked him, and they considered this to be a success because they said that the person was calmer and more lucid after having the shock treatment. But you have to understand what shock treatment does is produce an acute organic brain syndrome, just like any kind of brain damage. And so, yeah, a person's behavior is going to be dramatically changed by a shock treatment or a series of shock treatments. That is a physical fact. But that doesn't mean that the person is improving from their so-called mental illness. The same thing would happen to anybody that you shocked. And... It's common knowledge among neurologists that this is a symptom of brain injury. So we're talking about head trauma, really, and people know that when someone is hit on the head, they can go very delirious, and they can often be euphoric, and their consciousness and personality can change from being a hit on the head. And essentially, administering electricity to the brain to induce a seizure is a kind of of induced head trauma. Is that right? Yes, and then it's repeated every other day. So what you have is a series of brain injuries and maybe 15, maybe 30. Maybe you'll keep having closely spaced treatments for the rest of your life and that'll be called maintenance shock and just when you start to recover, you'll have another one. Now, what would you say, because I've talked with people who've had electroshock. My my father is an electroshock survivor. He was electroshocked back when there was no um, consent, and he has lost memory. He has had portions of his life erased from electroshock, and he is definitely a trauma survivor and describes the experience as as traumatic. Um, but I also know that there are people, and if you read Newsweek magazine, if you look on CNN, if you go to the mainstream, and again, this comes back to the deception part of this story, there are many people who will say, hey, electroshock helped my depression, electroshock, electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, helped me to feel better. Now, what would you, what would you say to that, um, that person, maybe that person, what would you say to that? Well, many things. First of all, there's a reason why people who praise shock get in the media and people who don't, don't. It has nothing to do with, you know, how many people actually had a good outcome and how many didn't. It's that when you when you say that you have a negative outcome and you had these adverse effects, you can't get any, anybody to listen to you. But the relatively few people who say, um, oh, I benefited from shock, get the ear of the media. But it's also important to say that those people also have permanent memory loss. You talk about your Kitty Dukakis, you talk about your Carrie Fisher. These are people who 
admit that they have permanent memory loss and they joke about it, you know. But that's not a common human reaction to having your memory erased. Tell us the story of how um, the industry, and when we're talking about this, the shock industry, maybe describe how much money is involved and how it's connected to doctors. But tell us the story of, of how this medical device, an electroshock treatment device, has not ever been tested properly or even regulated as other medical devices, which is something that's very disturbing and people should really know about and they're not told. Right. Now, this goes back to what you said before. Yeah, some people had shock treatment and they got benefit from it temporarily. And it's important to note that it's always only temporary, whereas the adverse effects are always permanent. So the question is not like, do some people benefit from shock? And all the evidence we have is that most people do not benefit from it in a way that um, makes up for the adverse effects. But the question is not, um, do some people benefit, but should we as a society or as medical professionals be offering patients a treatment that has not been scientifically, scientifically tested? That's the question. I mean, we need to go back, you know, and say, wait a minute. This has never been investigated objectively. There's very little research on the long-term effects, and the research that we have shows these adverse effects um, are common and permanent. Can you give us some examples of how it has not been tested? Um, I tell a story in my book that you really won't hear anywhere else, which is an amazing story in the history of medicine where survivors of shock treatment, the general public, um, patient advocates, politicians, just about everybody was lobbying the Food and Drug Administration in the 1970s when they first came in charge of the medical devices, including the shock treatment machines, lobbied the FDA to conduct a before and after brain scan study with this CAT scan, which was what we had at that time, on animals and on human beings in order to determine whether shock or cause brain damage or how much brain damage shock caused. And on the other side, the American Psychiatric Association, the whole organization, um, including its task force on ECT, which is made up of doctors who own or consult for the shock machine companies and make money from shock in various ways, they were lobbying the FDA. Don't do a safety investigation. Basically, they said, trust us, we're doctors. So what you're saying is that a very simple kind of safety study could be done, which is that you look at brains that have not been shocked, um, and you look at brains that have been shocked, and you just say, well, is there some damage here with the shocked brains? And we have CAT scans, we have all this medical technology that we can use now to just answer this question, you know, is shock damaging brains? And you're saying that it was it was blocked. Now, how did the industry prevent that from happening? And has that still never happened? It was completely political. It was lobbying. It was politics. You know, this was science. This, I'm sorry, this wasn't science. This was politics. It's all a political process. And the FDA bent to the greater power, which was the American Psychiatric Association. They never did the study. To this day, they have never required the manufacturers of the devices to conduct safety 
investigations and report back to them, or rather, when they did, the manufacturers did nothing and the FDA did nothing. They should have taken the devices off the market, but they didn't. When I call this book Doctors of Deception, there are so many tricks that these doctors use uh, to kind of cover up what's really going on with shock. And one of the tricks that they use is, um, well, first of all, all the research money is in the hands, most of the research money, I should say, is is in the hands of men who have financial conflicts because they work for the shock machine companies. And what they do, it's not true that there have been no MRI studies on shock, but the studies, the few studies, a couple of studies only, have been done by men who consult for the shock machine companies designing their shock machines. And what they do is they don't take people who haven't had shock and compare them to people who have. They take people who've had shock before, for the most part, assume that the shock did not damage their brain, then give them more shock. So they're comparing people who've had shock to people who get more shock instead of doing a clean study, which is what the patients were asking for decades ago, and that still hasn't been done. So that's just basic bad science. They're not comparing Basic a, bad science. They're not comparing right. a, a no-shock brain to a shock brain. They're manipulating the research. And I think you also mentioned in your book that there are a lot of studies on, well, how much electricity is best and which kind of electroshock is most uh, effective. And whereas this basic question of, well, let's compare brains that have been received ECT and brains that haven't, hasn't been done. And um, how is the medical device of an electroshock um, therapy machine classified by the FDA now? You mentioned that it hasn't been tested. Well, the FDA classifies shock or shock machines or any medical devices according to the degree of risk they pose because no medical device is completely safe in general. But Class 1 would be for a device that was safe. Class 2 would be for a device that poses some risk, but the risk can be managed by proper use or guidelines or warnings, like an x-ray machine would be Class 2. And Class 3 would be a device where the um, benefits have not been shown to outweigh the risk, and the device inherently presents potentially unreasonable risk of injury or harm. And so this is a high-risk category. And once again, a story that hasn't been told anywhere else, how ex-patients, survivors of shock treatment, lobbied the FDA and in fact convinced the FDA to place the shock device into class 3, the high-risk device, which outraged the American Psychiatric Association and started off this, you know, decades-long campaign of writing into the FDA. And what I did was I actually went into the FDA, went through uh, volumes and volumes of letters that people have sent in regarding the ECT device, and I have some of those letters in the book, and it's just heartbreaking to read the stories, the experiences of people who had ECT, wrote to the FDA, you know, in good faith, hoping that the agency would do something to protect them, and basically the agency did nothing although it did place the devices in class 3, um, but it hasn't done research and it hasn't issued warnings and it hasn't issued, it hasn't adopted the um, 
patient written informed consent statement that Committee for Truth in Psychiatry proposed to it. Um, patients are always assured that ECT will have no permanent adverse effects. So you would assume that there was research that looked into the duration of adverse effects, but you would be wrong because the industry just, the researchers just don't do long-term studies, or rather I should say, we have evidence that when they have done long-term studies, by which I mean six months or more after shock, when they have done these studies, they haven't published them. So where are they? What's being hidden? The few studies that do look at patients long-term, um, there's some that go out seven years, ten years or more. Those studies show conclusively that people have, still have amnesia and people have cognitive deficits. So this indicates these are permanent. Um, one of the guys who actually gets a lot of research money and works for the shock machine company, MECTA, did a six-month study in 1986. And they had to conclude that most patients had permanent amnesia that lasted at least six months because that's as long as they tested people. Okay, well, the basic principle of science is that you replicate your results. If you have one study that shows something, and you do another study to make sure that it's really valid. Well, after this six-month study in 1986, which showed that memory loss lasts at least six months, there were no more long-term studies until 2007. But at the same time, well, I should say, we know that there were, but we know that they weren't published. Now, this is a pattern that appears throughout psychiatry, and we've talked about this a lot on the show, and you can really see this in many, many of the scandals with AstraZeneca and Eli Lilly and all the different pharmaceutical companies that they do clinical trials on their pills, and they don't like the results. The results show that the drugs are dangerous, and they just hide them. They hide, this, they hide the results, and that is exactly what is happening with electroconvulsive therapy, and hopefully your book will help to unravel this and help to expose this misinformation that's coming from the shock industry in just the same way that other writers and journalists and activists and survivors have helped to pressure the exposing of the pharmaceutical industry in the way that it manipulates the, the clinical research. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio. We're speaking with Linda Andre. Linda is an electroshock survivor and director of the Committee for Truth in Psychiatry. She is a leading campaigner internationally against the risks and dangers of electroshock therapy. And her new book is called Doctors of Deception, What They Don't Want You to Know About Shock Treatment. It's published by Rutgers University Press, and it's highly recommended. Well, I guess I should say that, I mean, I'm not just making these claims. I actually have documented them in the book. For instance, people who signed up for a research study at NIMH by a very famous shock promoter were, were signing up when they signed up for this research protocol to be followed up at one year after shock. Well, then you look, you see the grant number, and you can find out which studies were published from this grant, which specified that patients were to be followed up at one year, and you read the published studies, and it doesn't say anything about the results that they found at one year. 
So that's an example of throwing your results up. So I have that documentation. I have, for instance, memos that were sent that were not um, not exactly public, but not exactly private, where the same researcher talks about following up people three to five years after ECT and ensures the Commissioner of Mental Health that this stuff is in publication. Well, you know what? This has never been published, so what happened to it? It was disappeared, the same as adverse uh, results from drug trials. And what I say in the book is the industry got scared back in the 1970s when laws began to be passed regarding informed consent, that people had to give their consent, you know, even if it was uh, coerced consent or untruthful consent, they still had to give consent. And so I, when you look back at what uh, the industry leaders said and did and wrote at the time, it's very clear that they decided back then that they are going to adopt the strategy of denial, 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 and they are going to come up with this line, shock is new and improved. It's not like it was before. It uses less electricity. It's safer. You know, and they've been using that line since the 1970s. You know, and it's pretty funny when people say to me, you had your shock in the 1980s, so you had the old shock, so that doesn't mean anything. And they don't realize that when I had shock, it was the new shock. You know, because they keep saying this over and over and over. So I had the new shock. That started in 1970s. But people hear this enough and they believe it. And it's worked wonderfully. It's simple. It's effective. It goes with what people already want to believe. People want to believe that technology is always advancing and science is always advancing, so things must be better now than they were in the past. But there is absolutely no truth to this public relations line. We should recognize the um, parallel with uh, other areas of psychiatry when the major tranquilizers like Thorazine and Haldol were introduced, anti so-called antipsychotics. Uh, patients were having really bad adverse effects. They were getting tardive dyskinesia. They were getting brain damage. They were getting very serious cognitive problems from the drugs, and it took decades for doctors and the industry and the drug manufacturers to ever acknowledge that this is true, that these experiences are real, that these dangers are real, and now it's widely seen and understood. Um, we just saw an um, uh, example of this with the so-called atypicals, Zyprexa and Abilify and Risperdal and all of the so-called new generation antipsychotics. When they first came out, doctors, the media, everyone would tell you, oh, these are the new drugs. They don't have the side effects of the old drugs. They work so much better. And many, many patients were switched onto these so-called newer, better, improved drugs on this industry claim that they were better and safer. And now we are seeing the complete collapse of that. It was a total lie, and it was an industry-driven, profit-driven lie. It made billions of dollars for the pharmaceutical industry. And um, now it's getting reluctantly but now widely recognized that the atypical antipsychotics like Zyprexa and Risperdal have same, just the same risks or worse and that they're not actually better or more effective than the previous generation. And meanwhile, the pharmaceutical companies have made billions of dollars on this, have banked on the success of the drug. So we're seeing something very parallel. And my hope with your book is that it's part of a change in society that we will start to question the actual details 
of the electroshock research that's not there, that's manipulated, that will actually get into the concrete facts of the matter that you've done so effectively in your book. Now, Linda, I know that you mentioned in your book that there have been some interesting studies that are much more honest coming out of England. And we've seen that that's often the case with other areas of being critical of um, psychiatric treatments, that the UK seems to be a bit ahead of other countries in the US in, in really getting more to an honest assessment. Can you tell us about those studies? All right. What happened in the UK was that their um, Institute of Psychiatry, which is sort of the same as our NIMH, um, has a component to it, which is called Service User Research Enterprise, made up of mental patients or uh, users, as they call them in Britain. And they commission a systematic review, which is not original research, but it's a survey of all the research, exhaustive survey, where you're not allowed to leave anything out because you don't like what it says. Um, one of the tricks that the shock doctors use is the selective review, where you review the literature and you just put in what says, who says what you like, and you leave out the research that you don't like. But this was a systematic review. And in fact, the authors of this study were ECT survivors themselves, along with professionals. Or I should say, these are survivors who are also now professionals. So they looked at everything they could find. Not only published research, but um, testimonies and what they found on the internet and all kinds of sources, because they wanted to be as thorough as possible. And they came out with this 85-page report which was all about memory loss because that was the thing that emerged from all this material. And they concluded that at a minimum, and they were being very conservative, they took the lowest figure that they could come up with to be conservative. They said at least, at least one-third of patients experienced significant permanent amnesia. So one-third was the lowest figure. There are other um, studies sources that show 80-90% of people experiencing permanent amnesia, which in my experience is way more accurate. But even if it were only one-third, you know, this is the most solid document that we have as far as prevalence of permanent amnesia and th that exists in the world. And it's out there, but in the U.S. you don't hear very much about this. So when you actually look at quality research, you get a very different picture than when you look at the research that's been manipulated by the shock doctors. Now, Linda, you've been an advocate and writer and speaker about this for decades, and you have lived a lot of the history of the challenges to psychiatry around electroshock. I'm interested in hearing about the history of the electroshock movement, and especially there have been some really interesting stories. Um, for example, the town of Berkeley, California, actually at one point actually voted in a ban of electroshock. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the um, survivor movement around electroshock. We started out with this very reasonable idea that people should be truthfully informed about the risks of shock. And then they could decide to have it or not have it. And that's still the position of Committee for Truth in Psychiatry. Um, what they did in Berkeley was survivors of shock treatment canvassed door-to-door -door asking people, do you want to have shock treatment in the city of Berkeley? 
And it was the citizens of, of Berkeley who voted against shock treatment. Now, the APA, or the local version of the APA, very quickly went to court to overturn that ban. But that was the only time in the history of the U.S. that shock has actually been banned. So it was actually passed in Berkeley. Yeah, and it was passed because the citizens of Berkeley said no. Yeah, there's kind of a common sense element here that we really need to find better ways to um, help people than using these really invasive and terribly risky procedures that unfortunately are the legacy of psychiatry. Hasn't there also been an effort in Texas to ban electroshock, and how did that go? There was an effort that went on for years, and it came amazingly close to being successful. The industry was very alarmed. It was afraid that shock treatment was going to be banned for everybody in Texas, and that didn't end up happening. But once again, that was due to the efforts of people who themselves survived ECT, in particular, a very remarkable woman who survived ECT and then became a lobbyist in the Texas legislature. Texas legislature. And they worked for years in the 1990s, the early 90s, and had a lot of support among the politicians and the public for a total ban on shock treatment. But that didn't happen. But it could happen. The main message of this book is don't trust people who hold themselves out as experts. Because, you know, as human beings, that's what we tend to do. But that can be a very dangerous thing when it comes to shock treatment. It could be a very dangerous thing when investing your money and trusting in Bernie Madoff, you know, as a financial expert, and many smart people were taken in by him. So it is human nature to not think for yourself to some extent and trust in experts, but you really need to look at who these people are, and that's what I do in the book, and I give you very good reasons for not trusting them. And I think, you know, the cure for this is critical thinking. I always say shock treatment is a litmus test for critical thinking skills because it really is. And I had those skills, and I set out to apply them to this subject, and the result is this book. I was speaking with a naturopathic doctor who's a friend of mine, and she explained to me that um, a friend of hers was an MD psychiatric uh, resident um, doing, doing uh, he was an MD doing his psychiatry residency as part of med school. And one of the things that they required was they required for this resident to be part of an electroconvulsive therapy treatment session. And it was really struck me because he was required. It was um, it wasn't given any kind of freedom to object or to to decline or to not participate. And there's a way in which the kind of the medical establishment's solidarity around these kinds of issues does have a groupthink kind of quality to it. That there is a um, everybody is invested in this belief, and so no one can really break out of it because they're all kind of tangled into it. And it, it does touch very deeply onto human nature in the way that you're describing. One of the things also I've noticed is that um, the leadership of the psychiatric survivor movement has historically largely been women, and I think that there's a big element of sexism that plays a role here. Most of the um, people who are patients who are given 
electroshock therapy historically have been women, and historically the doctors tend to be men. In the case of shock treatment, because it's largely a male industry and male-dominated and women, you know, receive, um, the male version has become the norm, and I talk about how how that's played out in the issue of shock treatment um, to the detriment of ECT patients. Linda, your book is so well-documented and has so much research in it, and I'm just wondering for people who are listening on the show today who are really interested in the topic of electroconvulsive therapy, electroshock therapy, what would be the one piece of evidence that you might want to leave with them to help them to break through this big misinformation campaign that's out there in favor of electroshock being safe and effective and something we should accept as a medical treatment? There are two studies that are not widely known and not widely cited that were done in just the last few years. And the amazing thing is they were done by Dr. Harold Sackheim, who is the most funded um, researcher in the world on shock and the biggest promoter on shock treatment. And people can judge his character by the descriptions I give of his behavior personally and professionally in my book. But the amazing thing is that he did a large study on efficacy and he did a large study on adverse effects, which was published in 2007. And despite the fact that he is the leading promoter of ECT in the universe, um, he couldn't quite manipulate the data enough to make ECT come out to be safe and effective because what he found in these studies is ECT is really not effective. It has oftentimes no benefit at all, and very few people have any benefit that's lasting even more than a month, and that's what the earlier research had shown, but then nobody looked into that question until now. Then he did a relatively large study on adverse effects with hundreds of patients in 2007. And what he had to conclude is ECT commonly causes permanent amnesia and cognitive disability. Now, this was Sackheim, who is the leading, one of the leading electroshock researchers. He's been a proponent and an apologist for electroshock for decades. And you're saying that, that recently, in 2007, even he had to publish some studies that recognized the dangers and ineffectiveness of electroshock in mainstream um, research journals. Is that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. Does that give you some hope that maybe the tide is turning? I noticed that your book is um, Jonathan Cott, who is an editor for Rolling Stone magazine, is um, one of the people who writes a blurb on the back. Robert Whitaker, who's been on the show quite a bit, he's a Pulitzer finalist, he has a blurb on the back of Michael Perlin, who's considered probably the leading um, legal advocate and scholar around mental health rights issues, um, is also a blurb on the back. And your book was published not by a small survivor press, but published by Rutgers University Press, which is a really established mainstream publisher, and it reflects the integrity of your research that you were able to get it, it published with Rutgers. Are you hopeful that things are changing? Do you feel like you know, we may be turning the corner on this uh, big lie, this tobacco industry scale lie about electroshock being safe and being promoted so much? 
I would like to think so, but I'm really not that hopeful. And the reason is, as I detail in the book, the promoters of ECT are kind of institutionalizing in these positions of power, you know, at the medical journals, at NIMH, um, in the media. And even as they age and pass away, they've trained the next generation to think the same way. So nobody in the next generation coming up of researchers is going to ask the question, does ECP cause brain damage? They'll still be asking the question, what kind of electricity is best? So unfortunately, you know, we have truth on our side, but they have power and prestige and money on their side. And I don't think survivors have been able to um, have the resources to, let's say, keep our movement going for another generation. I wish I, wish I could say differently. Um, if truth were everything, then it would all be on our side. But unfortunately, that's never been the case. Well, Linda, I want to I want to congratulate you again. Um, your book is is really a tremendous contribution to the movement, and it's an extremely valuable um, part of the effort to finally win some rights and respect for people who are considered mentally ill in society. So, thank you so much for being on the show today. Give us your contact information. Tell us the web address of your website and also the information about about your book. Okay, as I said, it's Doctors of Deception, what they don't want you to know about shock treatment. And it's in some bookstores. If it's not in your local bookstore, go in there and demand that they carry it. And then ask them if they'd like me to come and do a reading, because I'd be glad to do talks. I've been doing talks around the country, and I'll have some more in the upcoming months. Um, my website, which is evolving, ever-evolving, and will be updated on a regular basis, is doctorsofdeception.com. So as I have other speaking engagements, I will be putting them up on the website. And there will also be a way for you to contact me there when I get it up. Linda, is ect.org, is that a website that you would recommend as well? Oh, ect.org is the most comprehensive source of information on shock treatment on the Internet. Um, And I mean that very sincerely. It's got journal articles. It's got information on uh, legal cases. It's got articles that appeared in media on ECT. It's got a very interesting discussion forum where people who had shock or are considering shock can communicate with each other. So, yeah, I very highly recommend that as well. Linda Andre, thank you so much for your work and for your book and for being a guest today on Madness Radio. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Linda Andre. Linda is an electroshock survivor. She is the director of the Committee for Truth in Psychiatry, and she's the author of the new book published by Rutgers University Press called Doctors of Deception, What They Don't Want You to Know About Shock Treatment. It's a highly recommended book. And that's about all the time we have today on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio broadcasts every Tuesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern on Pacifica Affiliates, WXOJLPFM. 
Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD, Kasilof and Anchorage, Alaska. Co-produced by peer-run mental health communities, freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall. Music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.